Welcome to the PetroNerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of PetroNerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. We're back. It's the Chevron is Awesome podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Bellamy. No, this is the PetroNerds podcast. We put the nerd in PetroNerds. I'm with the host, Trisha Curtis over here. I am your co-host, Ethan Bellamy. Today, we're going to talk about Chevron, their amazing analyst day. We think that they're the best in the business. We're also going to talk about the China five-year plan. And this is, if you see the same clothes, it's because it's our second day, second episode of the same day on St. Patty's Day. And uh, by the time this airs, we will have had the second policy foreign policy uh, move from the Biden administration, both of which have been oil-related. The first was Jamal Khashoggi with the with the Biden administration basically saying, yes, the Saudis are guilty, and no, we're not going to do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And the second will be tomorrow in Alaska, the U.S. trade representatives meeting with the Chinese trade reps. Why, right. yes. why, why Alaska? I have no idea. They've already said that they're going to, the U.S. has already said that they're going to keep the Iranian oil sanctions in place, which is interesting. Um, Yeah, they haven't actually, what's fascinating about the Biden administration on this is that they haven't actually pivoted as far on in foreign policy stuff when we're thinking about oil and gas as as much as many thought they would. So I think there's still concern out there that these Iranian barrels are wanting to get out. And we are seeing that Iran is increasing production, trying to increase exports, but they actually grabbed a tinker. They actually just like we halted a tanker um, that somebody just interrupted and said it. Wait, don't do that. But the Biden administration just halted a tanker midwater and basically said that's Iranian crude. They're not supposed to be doing that. And they're being a little bit more hawkish. And honestly, if you listen to BBC and you listen to the Iranian stance, they don't think he's much different from they don't feel much different from this administration to the previous one in terms of what's going on at day to day. Kerry's John Kerry has uh, I think he tried to say that for with with regards to China that they wanted to separate right they wanted to separate the climate change stuff and they wanted to separate everything else and China told him to pound sand and that is very if you listen to the China Power podcast from CSIS which is really good on China that comes out really clear is basically they just the Chinese said no way this all goes together and so essentially we're not going to be able to work with China on unjust climate change because it's mixed in with everything else. We will get into the China five-year plan and talk about the climate change does quite a bit. But let's get into the Chevron Analyst Day and why we both thought that was amazing. And let's start with how they are approaching the energy transition. Yes, absolutely. So in case we didn't clarify, because we've actually had to do a couple takes of this because I didn't press record on the video. <laughs> so because we didn't say this is... This is our first like part one and part two. This is episode eight. It's still March 17th. It's still St. Patrick's Day. We're still in the same clothing. Um, my hair is still messy. And um, and Ethan is still drinking the same glass of Guinness. I'm on my second one. So we'll see if it's any uh, better or worse um, or better or worse for the wear with that. And it is really good. This is coffee Guinness. And I just I, I like it a lot. So. And if, if, she, if she only drank beer and I only drank coffee, then there's a chance we might have the same level of energy intensity. This is Oh, me. she paused. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it would energy right. intensity. I would say if we're measuring on a, 
yeah, I do have a, I have a lot of pent up energy, and I I enjoy doing this with Ethan because we get a um, I get to get it out of my head, which is nice, and and talk about it with someone who actually listens. So, um, just pretending. Um, <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> um, okay, this he is couldn't violent see that. on the show. You got to. Um, st- <laughs> back in, back in, Ethan. Okay, so Chevron is that we're starting is, is the Chevron. Um, in, it was a Chevron Investor Day. It was on March 9th. It was a virtual Investor Day. And um, they do it every year. These companies do a couple of them. And I really look forward to it because it's a great way to have like an, in, you get a, have an in-depth understanding of these companies and what's happening with them. Um, and they basically, all the stuff that you wanted to hear in the earnings call, they they just dive into it. And um, so they speak at length about how they're changing their, not changing, they speak at length about how they're getting back into the Permian Basin. So 2020 being a year that everybody took a pause and everybody pulled back dramatically on CapEx and that they're going to be spending a lot more money between now and 2025. Yes. And, and what is amazing about that forecast is they're all in, by 2025, they're almost going to be to where they were forecast wise pre-COVID, yeah. which is fantastic. Yeah. So I think, and I really think you're probably going to see that for, at least for most majors in the Permian Basin, this massive pause for 2021 or 2020, sorry. And then you, they sort of get back into gears. And to be fair, like they, and every other earning, every other operator in, in the earnings season has been pretty shocked by prices. So, I mean, these are more- To the upside. Yeah, to the upside. So the, the price upside has been great. So when they're all like, I mean, actually during earnings season, if you're listening to Diamondback and EOG and all these guys, and they're like- they're using price X of 50 and everybody's like, well, we're way above 50. And they're like, yeah, that's going back to shareholders. You know, that's they're, they're returning that. Mm. But clearly it was kind of a, it, it's definitely a shock. And for Chevron, they give you, I like that they give two price X. So it's like, here's a 50, what's going to happen? And here's a 60 and this is what we can do. Obviously the reality is they're going to have a lot more free cash flow. But the point is, is that they can invest flexibly in um, unconventionals and obviously the Permian being a base for that. And Chevron did do, does have more flexibility because they were the first to, I mean, they got their billion dollar windfall from from backing out of the um, Anadarko acquisition and then they took- um, yeah, they, it was really smooth. And then they took that, um, they took that money and then obviously they bought Noble with it. They were the first to get the asset, the first with acquisitions and the first to actually close. They just went after the midstream stuff. But the point is they, Expanded their portfolio. They have a good uh, footprint. We should also note that Chevron did years ago, and this wasn't that long ago, that they didn't know what they had in the Permian. Um, this is how like new people think of, when you think of like how new unconventionals are, they were about to sell the Permian because they didn't even know what they had. Hey, I'd rather be lucky than good. I <laughs> There's a... <laughs> there's a... Um, I'd rather be just super study my way through it and be super smart and not need that is your bias um that is my bias so chevron talks extensively about that this position that they have right that they're they're going to increase all their unconventionals and it's it's really case in point for a lot of the studying i've done over my career of just how much the unconventional industry has changed the entire global oil market i mean the u.s unconventionals and the ability to ramp up and ramp down and you know you hear folks in OPEC and, and analysts and, and folks outside of the U.S. and in, actually people within it criticize the U.S. shale sector for that it's it's not the mar- you know it's it's not um, the swing producer and truthfully regardless of whether it is or not it has been because the ability to move up and move down is mm-hmm. is what it, it can do and you can see it I mean I saw a reporter from Bloomberg called me today and I was speaking to her at length about how you shut in wells and how you turn them back on and how you can do that like this is how it works and this 
like prices go down, you shut the wells in, prices go up, you turn them back on. And, you know, that this is technically feasible. And really, when we're talking about unconventionals, it's just the capital outlay and the speed. And yes, those capital outlays are getting bigger. And so it's easier for a company like Chevron to spend tens of millions over versus a tiny company being able to spend a smaller amount and not doing as many wells. But the speed in which they're drilling is huge. So these efficiency gains, even over the course of 2020, that these operators made in drilling and completions was still pretty significant. And everybody, a lot of- So let me let me pause right there and ask you one question about that. Are you worried at all that the number of people who've been laid off in various basins and including the Permian will impact the ability to ramp back up and or the productivity when that happens? Because you know maybe you've got greenhorns instead of tenured folks who have exited the industry? Um, I think in any, when when you have any downturn, you change. This downturn might be different and that it, there's some more permanent structures to this, that there's problems with that, especially the speed at which we're, how we ramp up. And from what all the independents told us on the rings calls, they're not really ramping up, but we're at 220 rigs in the Permian Basin. So we're clearly, you know, we've ramped up from our low in July, you know, so like this is, it's a ramp up and to some degree. And let's just say we were, what, 400 rigs? Let's say we never get back there, but we get to 300. We probably don't need those 100 rigs because we are more efficient. I would say that the over the summer, when things probably get really hot, you'll feel it. There'll be tight, there'll be tightness in the market in certain places. You typically feel it if you, you know, maybe it's trucking, you know, like, it, do you need, frac, like, maybe it's getting frac sand. I mean, actually, I think there were some, there were some things I had heard that, you know, most of the independents have been calling for, they know there's going to be some inflation on the service side, right? They know the service costs are going to come up. If you look, follow the rig side, um, the rig companies don't want to actually lock in prices because they think they're going to be able to see, they're going to reprice in over the summer. We haven't seen massive day rates in rigs yet. So I assume that repricing is going to happen. But all that means that you're sort of gearing up for ha having stuff happen in the summer. The industry is pretty good at managing this. You still have far less rigs than you had before. But yeah, you're going to have people that have left and um, and and just there's going to be a lot of people getting on the phone, getting trucks and everything. I think I heard from some of the, we have seen sand tightness that just because these some of these mines were kind of shelved and out, now you're, everybody's going to ramp up and you're going to have to get this. So you have more frat crews, you're completing more wells. I think this stuff is real. And I'm guessing that we're probably, if you're a service company, you're trying to push back, right? You're trying to, you know, push on those prices and and, get more monitored right now. Got it. Okay. Well, we digress there, but yes, I think what we really want to focus on with Chevron is how they're approaching the energy transition and, and how they're going to, what is their strategy in tackling this whole new world of wind and solar and hydrogen and how they're prioritizing their business? Yeah. So I think that's, I mean, that's why we wanted to discuss this on the investor days because Chevron, in addition to how they're, the way that in which they're investing in unconventionals. And I, I do really think that is important to think about a leader, a company that's leading in the U.S. and actually probably globally in a way um, with their asset portfolio and how they're doubling down actually on unconventionals and in the Permian Basin particularly, and how they're approaching the energy transition and that that's a component of it. So they're doing pretty well from a, if you actually look at how they've compared to their peers from a share price performance, and they are very clear and they were clear in their earnings call. And we talked about this in, in kind of comparing them against BP, um, that how they were discussing the energy transition, how they were discussing renewables and how they really weren't going crazy and investing in them. And particularly, it's not that they're not going about lower carbon or talking about lower emissions and lower carbon and all that. Some of that 
is probably there's definitely a portion of all these companies that are talking about the enough to hit in their earnings call, but they are not investing in solar and wind, and they're making that clear that they're, that's just not a big investment. That is not how Chevron is transitioning in the energy transition. That they, they are not investing in solar and wind, and it's very important to point that out because. We have to be, it's it's no different than if, um, I mean, I guess Elon Musk is a bad example because he does everything, he just goes invest in everything. But it, it's no different than if um, you are a solar company and you just decided to drill an oil well. Do you think you're probably going to drill it well? Maybe not. Not, not if you got the expertise. Like, it might be a little bit difficult. And it's no different than if I'm an oil company. I'm like, let's go get into solar. It's a little bit easy because I'm just buying these pieces and I'm putting them together. But it's not the same business. And you don't know it the same way. And, you know, there are people on the offshore wind side that are very good at offshore. They've done it before. They, they have a, you know, Europe has a thriving wind business. We typically see most of the wind companies actually out of Europe. So it's not like they're going to go jump in, in oil anytime soon or... or I, it, the vice versa is what I, the point I'm trying to make is that just because you want to lower your carbon emissions, the the case seems to be that Shell and Total and BP to a large extent want to go invest in wind and solar. And I think Chevron is at least saying that's not your only way to lower your carbon footprint. And by the way, we still produce oil and gas and we do it really well. And they're saying that they they produce it well and they're going to have a lower carbon footprint and they're going to invest in all those things that lower those things. To that point, I think Occidental does point out in there and they uh, Vicky Hall has talked about it in earnings and uh, and at the Riyadh event and everything about how they're investing in, obviously, the using CO2 emissions and pumping, you know, for, for enhanced oil recovery and then getting the zero carbon barrel or having these net zero barrels. Yeah, and that makes sense to me that Oxy and, and you've seen some midstream companies, which ostensibly is my area of expertise, ramp up energy transition groups where you're seeing Kendra Morgan talk about enhanced oil recovery. And I like that because that's their core business already. And if you want to have CO2 that's not mined but produced and they can use that for EOR, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's it's a natural fit for their businesses. If Kendra said they're going to go out and build solar, that maybe they need to hire some folks to do that. It doesn't seem like necessarily their core competency. But I mean, if you, you also have to consider things like energy transfer, they've already had solar power along some of their uh, equipment in some areas where it makes sense. So there are, you know, modest incremental additions that we're, we've seen in, in midstream already. But for them to hold create a whole new division around that would seem like yeah, a stretch. I think, and I think this, um, I actually talked about it at the Evolve conference with this, the Arbo panel that I was on, and we talked about the future of energy transportation and DAPL. And I think we we discussed pretty well. I mean, I think I mentioned Enbridge has a, Enbridge has had a renewable business for a long time that they've done, they have been investing in this, but they kind of set started a separate business. And I don't know it intimately, but I mean, they, one, did it to lower their carbon footprint and it was a separate business. And I think they, when you're first mover in anything, you tend to, you can capture some market share and you can do stuff. Often, especially in renewable side, if you were first mover, you can almost sell the acreage and just make your money back because you got it so cheap. Now, mm -hmm. now you're definitely not a first mover. This is, this is the frothy Guinness. I mean, the renewable space, especially for wind and solar, it's, it's there. We're, we're already at the, at the frost space and it's, it's subsized and everything. But, um, and you've mentioned it, other, other people have mentioned it. I mean, the, the ability for like microgrids, BSB mentioned it on Chuck Gates' podcast on, you know, midstream companies actually doing um, doing things across the value chain to lower their emissions and doing the microgrids. Um, you can't, we talked about in the last podcast with Robert Norton on the, the just if, if these companies were able to do a microgrid in the upstream space, 
or, or do a little bit to get themselves away from the grid, they probably would have had a little more resiliency in terms of when they had the rolling blackouts and they were, they were shut down for electricity, they may have had a little more resiliency there. So for the most part, I mean, most of those operators are actually in the whole grid system and most of those wells are actually connected to um, connected to electricity and need electricity. There is a lot of interest, I think, on the upstream space in the Permian Basin and probably in the U.S. to y- use your own energy on your on site and to theoretically, you know, lower your emissions on paper and actually lower your emissions, but actually be part of your own grid. And I will have to say that uh, a shout out to our fellow podcast hosts on the Digital Wildcatters platform, Chuck Yates uh, with Chuck Yates Needs a Job. Uh, he talked about how he really had some he had to eat crow with his dad oh, because yes. his dad yeah. had a solar system with batteries and during the during uh the uh winter storm yuri which basically sadly took out 60 people's lives and froze texas over and cost billions in in power to to consumers and bankrupted gritty by the way uh that yeah, but, but, chuck was at his dad's house and he had solar with batteries and he was Tesla good battery backup yep and if you're gonna i mean now, granted, can every American spend fifty grand to install that system? Probably not, or maybe more than that. Would I, if I could? Absolutely. I've thought about the Jennifer. So this storm that we just had, and I, I do really like talking about the weather because I just grew up doing that, um, being a, a farmer's uh, granddaughter. But the, um, the weather. I have Ethan saw. I have two feet. Of, I had two feet of snow that we got on on Sunday. Um, he lives in an apartment, so he didn't have to shovel, but I shoveled multiple times and it was a great workout, but that, cause I'm smart, that two feet of snow, um, it was, I mean, it was insane that ha- that happened in one day, but I've thought about, I was more concerned about the power outage and just not being able to work and have a computer. And I have, I have a small battery backup, like a little, a little tiny thing, but I have thought about the Jennifer thing. I think it's Jennifer, Generac, um, for a long time. Generac. Generac. Yeah. I think for, I'm just adding. But uh, there are other operators, but sure. Um, yeah, something. Look, something well, look, the natural gas backup generator is great. Uh, I come from South Carolina. Uh, the house I grew up in uh, on Sullivan's Island was destroyed by Hurricane Hugo. Uh, we grew up with hurricane evacuations, which is very familiar to everybody in the Houston area. And one year we went to Charlotte and we spent 10 days trying to cut ourselves out with chainsaws and the natural gas backup generator meant that, that my grandfather built or had installed was the only, only house in the neighborhood that had power. Yeah. I've thought about that. I mean, I actually priced it a couple of years ago just to see what it would be. Um, Cause that basically pulls in, you're using natural gas and, Robert and I talked about on this previous podcast of the banning of natural, the wanting to ban natural gas. In when you, new- when you cheated on me. Yeah, when I cheated on you yeah, with, a, okay. with a different co-host, um, a new, a, another midstream co-host. Uh, so that pulling that natural gas for new builds would be you couldn't do it for. They're wanting to ban that for new builds, but it's it was something that made me think about whenever and the oil industry to be like during the storm. If you saw on LinkedIn, they were everybody was out there like taking pictures of the snowplow, taking pictures of their truck, taking pictures of them shoveling, and then they were also taking pictures of their natural gas fireplace and saying, you know, I heart natural gas and all these things. Um, and that's that's great. I, I don't think. Well, to be fair, probably just the people we follow on exactly. social media. Well, yeah, I mean, it just it's literally who I'm connected with on LinkedIn, right. which is, you know, or, or the feed I see. So that is definitely a, a no thing. So I don't even know what it would be like if I'm, I'm on the other uh, on the other side of that. And for the record, if you do not support realistic, normal pipeline construction, please go outside and turn off the natural gas meter to your house. PSA over. Um, <laughs> 
Okay, that's that's Ethan's commentary on the on the midstream side. I did I saw Excel had sent the email out that had the your meter the, the picture of your nat- natural gas meter, and because I do have every like everything in this house is connected to natural gas, I and I was running my fireplace the whole the whole time. I did dust off my natural gas meter and um, was happy that it was working and everything. And also Excel, I don't know if you saw that they're they're looking to get reprieve from uh, the federal government, but they were also they're basically also gonna Essentially, it was like a $270 increase for every single person, which in the grand scheme of it compared to what Texas felt was was smaller. But they're going to just... Peanuts. They're going to stretch it over two years um, to in, just increase our bills over two years. But it is interesting, like when we think about that, and it, this is an important thing about the energy transition, that small amount, like, you know, some of us would say, I just say, I just want to eat it. Just let me pay it now and I'm just done with it. Um, but, you know, if, if you don't have that money that month, that's a big deal. And the, it is a huge deal for, you know, if if your electricity bill on average just goes up $10 a month or $20 a month, it's it's big. And it's no different than we were talking about on this, on episode one and, you know, an hour ago about the about oil prices increasing and, and feeling that as you see it on the, on the electricity side. And we have digress plenty from this. Sure. Well, there's something to be said for buyer beware of signing a contract that exposes you to energy prices. But at the same time, the people least best equipped to deal with higher prices are going to end up the most hurt in Texas. And whatever comes from Texas, whether it means, you know, it's it, it, the, the blame is, is to be shared by all parties. It's not solar winds fault it's not natural gas fault it's a governance and systemic fault that led to the deaths of 60 people we don't want to see unreliable energy systems like that we will need to spend more money to make sure that that doesn't happen again whether it's places that are mostly already prepared like colorado or places that are seemingly woefully unprepared like texas but i don't think we did chevron enough no, justice no, so let's get back to yeah. chevron so getting back to chevron and um okay so <clears throat> the cool part of the show i mean i i just think chevron is a great case study similar to bp if you want to understand renewables and everything but chevron's a great case study in understanding how an operator is investing in how they've done unconventionals as a major and gotten into it you know bought companies the smaller companies they are not just in the permian basin but they are in the Marta in argentina and they're in um they're in the unconventionals in canada um and they're they're have a global portfolio they mentioned and we've we've mentioned it if the the u.s becomes too onerous they've mentioned that they have global assets and they will pivot outside of the u.s um that being said in their investor day, they spoke really clearly about how they're going to ramp up their Permian production and their Permian activity and their production and that they can do that because they are they have the flexibility to do so. So they pulled it down um, and being this, you know, being able to flex up and flex down because it's unconventionals and, and the, the short cycle nature of the business. They emphasize short cycle and unconventionals. It, that was basically the entire beginning, you know, that prior talk of their presentation was mainly that um, and talking about how they're going to be able to increase their their permanent portfolio. And I don't know if we're repeating this again or if you mentioned it when I accidentally did not click record, <laughs> um, but you made a really good point about how they are able, Chevron is able to get back to where they, essentially they're able to get back to where they were pre-COVID um, relatively quickly. And that's that's something that people do have to realize when they're thinking about permanent, the permanent base in particular and the U.S. oil market is how quickly, if these guys want to do it, especially at these prices, they can do it. So I just I want to throw a little bit of caution to everyone who thinks like the U.S. is done. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons for skepticism, but it's it's important to think about that. And just a midstream note there, because mm-hmm. it does exist and it is necessary to produce this stuff. We've got plenty of Permian crude oil pipe 
Lots. coming out. Yes. But at this rate of growth, we might actually need some new gas plants in 18 to 24 months. The The planning cycle for that is, should be happening now. And it's really interesting because there are plenty of private operators would have a, which have a ton of leverage. They're probably not going to trade. So it's going to have to be Kender and Targa that step up to the plate to build some of these new plants. But I don't think most people are expecting the need for a new infrastructure there or really anywhere. The places in the United States where we definitely need new infrastructure are, A, if DAPL gets shut in. Yep. That's still a question mark. Yep. Uh, we didn't, and we on one of our prior podcasts, we said that it, something might happen this week, but it's still it so a we, question mark. It, it's still in question mark. We yeah. uh, there has not been an update. Seriously, check out the the. You can play that the evolve. We talked about Dapple and the energy transportation at length. Um, I talked about it with Arbo on the at Digital Wildcatters Evolve conference. You can go to their website and check it out. It's it's a decent conversation on just the risk yeah, and everything. But the world is coming to the true companies is the bottom line. Well, I mean, the, the, <laughs> and to a lesser extent to Tallgrass. Yeah, the, it's just that the, I you know what interested me was that this company Arbo was sort of quantifying this risk, right? They were they were trying to quantify this risk, and to me, I mean, they, and they they also send people to the hearings and they do all this stuff. And honestly, this is something I've been working. I did this this like fireside chat with him because I've been working on pipelines for my like you for most of my career and on on production and everything, and so. I, talking about Keystone XL and Enbridge and Line 5 and everything. And we did talk about Line 5 at length in the in the previous podcast. But it's just a serious, like, the lack of redundancy or the ability to, if the, if this pipeline mm-hmm. gets emptied or something, the it changes the game massively. And we will spend time talking about it. We we don't, at the moment, it's just up in the air. Deb Holland was, a, she is now the acting Secretary of Interior. She was, um, she didn't make it through Congress. We haven't heard, I haven't seen anything or heard anything big. We'll see what that means for DAPL um, and, you know, her conversations if she has any with the Army Corps of Engineers, so we don't know. Um, so, and nothing, I think Washington's sort of in a bit of a pause on those two things. But you're absolutely correct. The midstream side is huge. And I would say that because of where we're at. With well, the- I didn't finish my list. Let me finish my Sorry, list. Yes. The other place is the Northeast where MVP is all but 8% done. Interestingly, Transco pushed back on MVP, which I thought was was pretty funny. Uh, it's it's so close to being done and we'll see. Do, I mean, it, it's a question mark for the ability of the Carolinas to purge coal production. So without MVP, that becomes a little iffier. And certainly there won't be any more big diameter pipelines with a FERC that's starting to weigh GHGs in uh, permitting. So after that, it's MVP or bust. And I think ultimately we're going to see the Northeast gated by pipeline capacity. So it's yep. it's it's gas processing capacity in the Permian that is potentially going to come. It's maybe a new natural gas pipeline down the road, which Kinder is most likely to build and sanction it's uh it's the uh crude pipelines coming out of the bakken which uh tall grass and true companies put together a joint tariff idea to get all the way down to the gulf coast which is interesting that that they would do that uh certainly the down to cushing at least you'll need some redundant capacity and it's the northeast other than that we're still pretty much overbuilt for now yeah i i i, I don't disagree with that and part of that overbuild is that we do actually did have and every time you have a big you know the, you have the differentials blow out and you go crazy then everybody overbuilds and so the permian is certainly overbuilt on the pipe on the crude oil pipe side mm-hmm. we're okay in all these other places simply because we've reduced production so we it will be a problem if to go to access 
gets emptied. Um, and the the Northeast, I think, is this is something I talked to a lot of folks about. And it's interesting because if you I I have not previously listened to a lot of uh, utility company earnings calls, but I was listening to Duke Energy because they had mentioned that they may. I know, but you got to it's, it's interesting because <laughs> yeah. they say the things no. that they kind of these utility companies are pandering as well. You know, they're saying all the stuff that they need mm. to. And you're like, your job is to. You have to provide reliable energy. And, well, and- it's, I'm going to cut them more slack, right? Because here's what I think happens to utility companies is, hey, look, if they can take a dollar and jam it in their rate base and then charge ratepayers for it, they'll do that. So, yes, let's build a completely secondary, redundant, uh, renewable energy grid that has 30% capacity factor and tack it onto the existing grid yeah, and double the rate base. They can't. Sure. They great. Can't let's show- do it. But Excel can't say, hey, we have all this wind and we have all this solar and we've integrated it and everything and we have given you complete reliability. We, we, I have not experienced a brownout in Denver, thank right. God. So far, um, right? So far. So far. But, they but also there have, are threshold limits that that's going to require. But they have, they have a lot of coal and a lot of natural gas. Um, yes, they do. And so there's a, we're, we're digressing onto this, this power thing, but um, I think a lot of folks since the Texas storm have actually pulled up the EAA power grid and done it. And now I have actually pulled up the global power grid. So so I'm well aware of the power for all these countries. And holy crap, there's a lot of work to do if you really want to get to emissions on the on the coal side. So if you if you're wanting, if we're talking CO2 emissions, it's it's honest to God, as much as and I do love the oil and gas industry, but it really just it's if it's about emissions, it's about coal and it's not we have a lot of coal here, but it's really not as much here as all it right, is. Well, in, we're, we're gonna get to China, yes. but we keep digressing away from Chevron. So okay. I want to bring us back to why I like Chevron so much here. Uh, so they're lowering scope one and scope two emissions. They're maintaining their dividend. They're oh, yeah. planning planning to return and actually, you know, planning to return excess cash to shareholders with buybacks and have a robust balance sheet. And they have what I think is the most defensible, reasonable strategy about tackling the energy transition, which is uh, rate of return driven, not going whole hog into areas that they don't have subject matter expertise in and force ranking things by cost abatement, which I think is, I don't think you could come up with a better strategy. No, I think you have to, if you're, if you're an oil and gas company and you're playing the space, there's no, there's no way you could, you could say, well, we can't focus on lower carbon because they, they have to. So, and they are also recognizing that you're still going to need oil and gas and they're one of the people do it. And they, they do actually have, I believe their numbers were in the twenties for their carbon. And I believe when we talked about BP, it was at 30. So they do have, and they Chevron says that they have a lower carbon footprint on a barrel per, on a barrel basis than their peers, and I, I think they they do from a ranking standpoint. They also on the debt side, you're correct. I mean, I heard the same things that they they do have lower debt. They're going to continue to pay down it. So this was also the hundred year anniversary of their company. So they've been around hundred years. So they have actually been around for an, uh, two pandemics now, and um, you know the Great Depression, and they've actually been able to maintain their dividend. So it's important to think about this, and and we could you know. I'm not, I'm not, I don't own Chevron. I'm not, I'm not touting them because of that, but I, I don't either. I think from a perspective of how a, uh, a company is handling the energy transition and how they're just doing it, it it's, it's really important. If you are, um, if you are on the other side of this or, or you don't understand oil and gas, you should follow Chevron because this, this is how, you know, they're kind of setting how this is going to work out. Um, probably how they're going to survive through it and how they're going to maintain it. And the, the what they say in the earnings call, and this is where you know that I'm going to explain this because this is a, it was just really great for the CEO to explain this. He sort of echoed this in his previous earnings calls, but he's asked directly by an analyst, and he's asked directly by Paul Chang if 
he's asked if the business, what's the core, what's the core business going to be 10 to 20 years from now? And that if, do you see yourselves, your core domain in oil and gas, um, or is it as a broader base or is it a broader base energy? So in other words, in the low, in, in the lower carbon over time, do you see your overall asset mix or maybe the revenue or profitability cash flow from your current core operation will come down to a come down to a percentage. And Mike Worth's response, the CEO's response is I actually and he says, quote, I actually think the answer to that is yes. I think it will be because 10 to 20 years from now, the world is going to be using more oil and gas than it is using today. And I know I know that may not um, then may not be something that everybody believes or everybody wants to be the case. But that is, in fact, what I think the data really does suggest. We intend to be one of the very best, one of the most responsible, one of the lowest carbon oil and gas companies. And I think that's, it's a pretty, it's just a pretty important thing to think about is that they are, they are doubling down on oil and gas. They are an oil company and they are, um, they're doubling down on unconventional so that they can be a flexible company in how that they, how they run their business and run their assets. And that the, something that entered this conversation about the energy transition and lowering carbon has, I think it's, it's, um, it's made people think, um, especially be, given the IEA report that we talked about, it's made people think that we won't be using, uh, oil and gas in the very, very near term. So that, in 2025, we'll be dramatically reducing our use. And, you know, if you, we had major policies to institute, th that could be the case, but it's not likely. Um, and this is a company that's basically telling you that and how they're investing it. And I think that the, the, it, we're seeing that sort of play out in the stock market and we're sort of seeing that play in the world. And it, it does just point to me this very big divergence between what's actually happening uh, when we see oil and gas investments, not just here in the U.S., but when we see it abroad, if you're paying attention to close investments in Guyana and the Middle East, what's happening versus the um, what's being talked about. And what's being talked about far more is the energy transition and the shift. And this is a great pivot point to China. This is a, a great point to interject with a, a wonderful saying that I like, which is you can ignore reality, but you cannot ignore the consequences of reality. That's, uh, it's very true. And I am a total, I am, I was, I've been studying uh, the last few weeks on, on international relations and the energy transition and making sure I am, I am up to speed and knowing this stuff and, and where the investments are. And, and it made me realize my, you know, studying in school of learning about the realist perspective in international relations. And it, it's something that in our, in our episode one of this previous podcast that we we're talking about these, the academic perspective of the energy transition. And I just think that the, the academic perspective is it's pretty naive. Um, and I really am, I'm really disheartened by a lot of the folks that are, uh, have been doing geopolitics for a long time and are not that completely unaware about how oil and gas works and how hydrocarbons work. And yet they seem to be at least writing that they seem to be that it's going to work out really cleanly and that simply the demand for oil is going to decline. The price of oil is going to decline. The renewables are going to thrive. And if you're a Middle East country and you want to play ball, you'll just get into renewables and it'll be just fine. What they forget is that the rents, the actual money that you're going to get on solar and wind are going to be far less than oil and gas. They also forget that what would prevent these countries from just producing a crap ton and using it? I mean, if you're going to grow, like, why not use it for your own grid? You could, you will, they will use it. They will use it for everything. It is the only thing they have. They're going to, you know, we, people are concerned about carbon emissions in Saudi Arabia when they, they increase a million barrels a day of burn in the summer, just for, just for, uh, Air, air conditioning. conditioning. Yeah. Yes. That's huge. You think that's going to go down when demand for their product goes down? No way. They're going to burn the crap out of that. 
So it's something that I think I was in London a few years ago at Chatham House. And I remember a guy asking me, um, I think it was Paul Stevens. And we had a conversation and he was like, you know, could would we maybe not lower our carbon footprint because they would use it? And I'm like, yes, that's a very likely scenario. You may not lower the carbon footprint. That's the base case. Like that's, that's not the... going to burn it. Like, yeah, there's so, a lot of... Um, Either naive, willful blindness, naivete, hope as a plan. It's very, I mean, we try to think about what the Russians will do in a world where, let's say we banned ICE vehicles and that took demand down and the price of oil fell. Well, India and China are going to consume more because the price is lower. Yep. And, that's and the Russians are going to produce the same amount. That's the thing is this this <laughs> price is really and we've talked about this in the very beginning of this podcast. I think we talked about price at length on on this podcast of of this $50 price tag and what that meant and you know it, the premise from what I'm seeing and again I I did I am using for one of these things that I'm referencing I'm I'm referencing the recent report from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies on their forum on on a lot of the academic thought that seems to be behind some of this energy transition rhetoric. And the premise does seem to be in a lot of this that's that l- prices will go down, demand will go down, and that th- they don't focus on nor- IEA, BP, none of them focus on the role of price and prices being low and what that would actually mean for demand in countries in which you weren't constraining it politically. So politically, and this is where we should, I really want to talk about the China thing, and we'll be talking about it more at length because they just came out with their, their five-year thing. But something I was thinking a lot about when we're, when you're, if you're thinking about the energy transition and you're thinking about it really has to come, if this is about carbon emissions and, and the impact on climate change, then you have to look at the carbon emitters. And you can pull up the data from BP and others, and you can see and uh, the, the UN Climate Report, and you can see where China ranks amongst the US in emissions. And you can see where the US is and where China is and uh, where India is. And obviously, the, the US has come down and, and declined. And largely, we mentioned this before, because of uh, because of the switch from, from coal to natural gas, which is honestly barely begun in terms of a grid perspective in the U.S. And then um, China's continued to ratchet up from a CO2 emission standpoint, and India's in growing as well. And the same if you look at what they're using for from an energy standpoint and just growing economically, that's the case. But last fall, China came out and excited the world because they said that uh, Xi Jinping, the forever leader of China, of the Communist Party, who's, who's going to be in power forever, has said that... Um, China has a commitment or or is uh, is I guess they're committing to a 2060 carbon neutrality pledge so that they would be carbon neutral by 2060. And if you see how much more they're emitting way more than than we're emitting and they're continue to increase. So it means that at some point they would have to peak. So everybody's sort of expecting like when is this peak going to happen and then what are all your goals behind this. So China's five-year plan, this is the 14th five-year plan. This is something that I think that happened under Stalin and, and communist countries do this. They do these five-year plans and you have this like trajectory and and it sort of happens. And you basically set a, what they have done previously is they set like a GDP target and then they set these other targets and everybody sort of just fills them in. And it's always been about growth, you know, economic growth at, you know, sort of at all costs. And um, for China, you have to realize, and I'm I'm fortunate that I, that I have studied them and actually going back and looking through all these papers and stuff is great because I recognize names that I like used in my dissertation that I interviewed for my dissertation at London School of Economics. So like Andrew Speed and all these China experts, they're still doing the same stuff. Um, and not, to me, not the premise of China hasn't changed a whole lot and that energy security and security overall of their stuff is the most important because they're a growing nation and growing country. And aside from the serious geopolitics that, that go on with that, 
um, energy security is very important. So the reason the initial wording from this five-year plan disappointed was because it only mentioned that carbon neutrality pledge once. Um, and this was a 148-page document. So the media has not given this enough attention and that it was only mentioned once and that they didn't have concrete. I mean, they didn't actually have concrete goals sort of listed. So they have this like they'll list out, and obviously this is in Chinese, so it has to be then translated, but there's a couple sources. You can Google this and you can see it. And so they list out like what's binding and what's not binding. And there's not a ton that's binding. It's sort of, they have some indicative things. And I think the problem with it is that we know that, and they, they basically stated that they're going to increase their emissions in the short term, and then they'll sort of be decreasing them. And the tricky part with all that is, and, and the reason why the wording matters, and I think over the next few weeks and months, they'll be doing the actual formal pieces of this. Um, but overall, just this 148-page document, I think the consensus is, um, and I'm probably being more realistic and honest about it, is that it did sort of disappear disappoint in, in terms of language. Now, folks will say, and the, and the research I've, I've read suggested that they tend to uh, under-promise and over-deliver. So they have over-delivered in the past and that we should take that into consideration. But maybe we should also consider that they're not going to over-deliver because they're going to, uh, they're actually changing their growth, the way they do their growth targets. And they're realizing that they have to slow down in how they're spending all this money. And that spending money willy-nilly and growth at all costs has actually led to the rise of the coal side. So China, I believe, thinks that this from a very strategic perspective in terms of coal has created um, it's a lot of jobs. They do not use all the coal capacity that they have. They do not use that every single day. That is redundancy built in the system, and that is individual local governments and municipalities that have built out all this coal-fired power generation, which has helped increase GDP because they're building it out, they're creating jobs, and they're doing all of it. But it doesn't mean they're using all of it. It's just like hearing about, there is a really good podcast on the energy energy transition podcast on China. You have to pay for it, um, $7. But it's a it's an interesting podcast in terms of learning about how um, how China's been going about this and, and how they spend their money and how this is, is entrenched. And actually, when you do this research and you listen to the other side of this, it's not very positive. I mean, even the people on the positive side, it doesn't look good. It's because the people are hoping that this, carbon neutrality thing, it means that China is just going to go gung-ho into nuclear and they're going to bring in all this natural gas. They're, I mean, they're, they're importing a ton of liquefied natural gas. That's hugely important. They also, in their five-year plan and their other plans that we've heard, they are emphasizing energy security. So they want to increase their, they want to increase their own production of natural gas, which is interesting because that means they're, they're going after shale gas domestically. They have been for years. They've struggled with it a bit for sure. But also coal, peak emissions, 2030. And they aren't gonna fire four million coal plant workers and and coal miners. Yeah, <laughs> and energy security is a bigger priority, I think, than climate change for them. Yeah, and I think I think you have to realize that in a communist country in which you know the leader is the leader forever, he has a lot of flexibility. Um, but he doesn't have enough flexibility in that he still has to, you still have to have the buy-in of the people to be a communist country, yeah. and the buy-in so, of the people. Well, is I think let's speak. I don't think it's. I think it's a totalitarian government in a very capitalist country. So in should, a semi-capitalist country should, with a lot of, a lot of, they use cap, capitalism is a loose term in China because it's, it's yeah. used when they want it and it's, and it's pulled sure. back when they don't want it. So yeah, I, one I party mean, control. all you have to, you can literally, I get on my bike and work out in the evenings and I turn on my TV. And if you turn on the TV at seven o'clock at night and watch Bloomberg and you watch it till midnight, the one thing you will notice is that, um, <laughs> 
the the sovereignty of Hong Kong is gone, and that you know China's given very little criticism in the, in the media anymore in terms of the stuff that the stuff that they're doing. And um, this administration is actually not changed that much than the previous administration on some of their stances on this. And I think it's, that's what's going to be tricky is I don't think they're going to be able to just separate. Um, I, I, we mentioned this before, but I don't think they're going to be able to separate climate change policy, which the John Kerry and the administration said they would like to do with China, just separate uh, climate change policy and work with China on that and then have all the other stuff separate, which isn't going to work in the first place. And that's not fair to, you know, the major humanitarian and trade issues as well. I mean, I, I just think that's disproportionate, um, but it is how this, this is how this administration is running, um, that climate change is an existential threat, and that's the most important. And then these other things. Are- so, so let's get to brass tacks. I'm going to put on my national security hat. And one of my best friends was, used to patrol the South China Sea. He used to patrol the Persian Gulf, so I won't mention him, but we talk a lot about this. Would you say, would you say that the theory that we would have to worry about would be that this is just big bait and switch? So China can make all these. It's kind of like a, pro, a politician now with a four-year term or a two-year term or a six-year term talking about 2050 zero targets. They're not going to be around to see that come to fruition one way or another. The Chinese can sort of promise and lay out these plans very easily and then roll those back once they've taken on all the heavy manufacturing of the planet because the OECD countries have pushed out because of higher energy prices all the manufacturing to places that don't have mm-hmm. emissions intensity targets that they are rigidly or rigorously going to meet. Uh, so I think it's it's a very good question and it's something that people miss a lot. As I... I have a more nuanced perspective in that when you've, if you've ever studied China in depth, the thing that you'll realize is it's way more nuanced. It's never one or the other. They have a, I call it, um, and I coined this, and I've said this in meetings with with government officials, it's throw spaghetti on the walls and see what sticks. It's literally throw everything at it. And China had this in 1993 when they were starting to import energy and going crazy. It was the go out strategy, right? To go out and get everything. They didn't have a concrete plan of like, we're going to send our oil companies out. We're going to get, you know, oil for equity. You know, we're going to go to Sudan. They didn't always, they went out there and they did it. They didn't get every, they didn't get every physical barrel and bring that into China, right? That's not exactly what happened. Now, that's not been a bad strategy because now they own almost all the rare earth minerals and all the stuff that's going to the battery components in the Congo. So they do control a lot of this. So they're sort of throw spaghetti, get it all, do all of it, overpay, do everything, get into places that the U.S. doesn't want to be in places that it was not a bad strategy in how this looked. So I think there's it's a broader perspective in that they're going to say, hey, we are doing this. It got the attention of everyone. It got everybody in. It propelled people on the in the climate change and academic community to really believe that China is believing in this. And it benefits China immensely. And I think this is very important from a security perspective to think about. It benefits China immensely to be setting the standards for how these, uh, in, how these uh, bat- the processes for batteries and everything. So they have a massive benefit from the standardization practices of renewable energy, and they do control the bulk of the entire supply chain. So when we're when when are John, they using solar power to build all the solar pa- um, solar panels in China? They're not doing that. But <laughs> when when John Kerry says, "Okay, you can go just go make solar panels," we don't we make a fraction of them in the U.S. I think they make still make yeah. make seventy percent of them. But the problem is, is they actually it's a very environmentally intensive process 
to um, refine the refining process of the rare earth mineral, the, the the cobalt and the nickel and the magnesium and the uh, lithium and everything you're doing, the components that you're putting into batteries and that you're pro- putting into, you know, all these, you know, these EVs and these wind turbines and everything you're doing, that all has to be processed. Do you think the folks in DC understand that we're going to expose ourselves to foreign supplies of nickel, cobalt, rare earth minerals, and that doing that domestically will have some serious NIMBY problems? I don't think that, I don't think yet, because I don't think they, well, you know, I don't know if the bulk of people who are angry about plastic straws understand that all the, and and have a Tesla in their yard or or have a, a, you know, an electric vehicle. I don't think they realize that the refining process of the electric vehicle, the only reason you can, it's all done in China is because they don't have the environmental standards to, so they have no, the pollution standards are are, are really poor and it's a really yucky and intensive. You're not going to build, you're not going to build a refinery processing plant to process those minerals here in the U.S. because we have not built a new refinery, a big new refinery since the 70s and people in the oil industry always talk about it because our environmental standards on NOx and SOx and emissions are higher. We just have strong, high, we have stronger regulations. Same reason we had the Volkswagen, um, the Volkswagen thing, the the fraud that happened was because we have higher standards on NOx and SOx emissions. Um, that's nitrous oxide and they don't have them as high in Europe. And we, um, but in Europe, they, uh, I think they subverted at least downplayed those emissions and increased the the uh, the level that they wanted for compliance for carbon for for um, GHGs. So it changed the whole. So it was all about miles per gallon then. And so that's when they faked us out with the with their whole thing that didn't actually work. And we it was a case in point of the U.S. having these higher standards. So when people talk about like. Are you going to be able to build a, are you going to one, be able to mine for lithium in the U.S.? Technically, I think we, you're going to, you probably have a lot of rare earths and, and minerals and stuff. You're going to find them everywhere. When the price goes up high enough, everybody's going to find them in their backyard. Not everywhere, but look at Russia. I mean, Russia's case in point of like, Russia has a, could, can play a role in a lot of this stuff if they wanted to. And they, they'll just mine the crap out of it because they have all of Siberia. The U.S., just citing a new mine is going to be really tricky. And mm-hmm. most folks that are proponents of this, I don't know if they're big proponents of mining. They sure as hell hate the oil sands. No, they're not proponents um, of mining. And the, and the oil, 100% they're not proponents of mining. The oil sands, you know, nobody liked the big caterpillars that, which are super cool, by the way. You just got to go look at them because if you've ever been to a coal mine or an actual mine and you see this equipment, you got to appreciate it. But I like guy stuff and it's it's flipping awesome. Um, and just to see how big it is. And that you have to make and process that stuff and, and you know, that equipment. That is a boom for the U.S. if they do that. I think that I am hearing that the federal government is interested in doing that in the U.S. Um, I don't think I don't think they appreciate that this new infrastructure thing that Biden wants to do, which is now that we've spent two trillion dollars on a, um, a segment of the economy that's hurting, uh, that's that's and the economy is doing great. We now have inflation, but this this one segment and we're spending two trillion. Now we're going to go raise taxes on everyone, and then we're going to um, I'm sorry, we're going to raise taxes on the wealthy, and we're going to go do a big infrastructure plan. But what's the infrastructure going to be? And it sounds like it's going to be on a lot of um, electric vehicle charging stations. Great. Um, you know what? You know who else did that? China did that. They have a ton of electric vehicle charging stations. Go watch one of those road, the car shows. Go watch um, Top Gear, you know, old episodes of Top Gear. And I know those guys are controversial, but they're also hilarious and great for a car show. And go watch the the Grand Tour on, on Amazon Prime and go to the China episodes and see when they go to China and they're driving around. And actually, that, that Energy Transition podcast on China, it's amazing, amazing to hear about the, basically in a short, like a two-year period, China 
produced and used more cement than we have done in the entire history of the US um, in their infrastructure build out. They did all this, nobody's in the buildings, nobody's, and I'm not, this is not hyperbole, I'm not exaggerating. I know we say this, but like, it's very, very real. Cement is one of the highest emitters of CO2. So is steel. I mean, these are major industries. And Chevron, you heard it and I heard it in their in this investor day, that 90% of global CO2 emissions are not from road fuels. So in the US, 1% of emission, oil and gas production is 1% of US CO2 emissions and road fuels globally. We're talking, so we're, we're talking the vast majority of, of CO2 emissions in the world are not coming from oil and gas, e the, the, either the production, the digging amount, I don't care how you're doing it, or even the use of them. So it just feels to me like we need to be focusing on uh, the broader picture and the reality here. And then this is just not an anti-oil and gas thing. Um, and this is, the, it's, it shouldn't be just about anti-oil and gas and, and, and there are massive consequences. And the reason it's really hard to go tackle coal in India and China is because it's very, very entrenched in their economies. And it's really, really sticky. And it's going to be very, very hard to move against that. Um, not saying that you, it, you, shouldn't go, you shouldn't work on the other stuff and, and the technology is important, but it's silly to be thinking that you're going to solve it by banning plastic straws and, um, you know, and, and curbing production of crude oil and federal lands in the U.S. And seen. And with that, I think we will wrap up this episode and wrap up the St. Patrick's Day doubleheader. Yep. We are going to come back and probably in our next episode talk about the carbon intensity of steel, cement, and EV charging yeah, and, we, and whether just, it's a good I do, I do just want to say before we completely wrap this up is that mm. this is not an anti we're, I'm, we're, I'm definitely not ripping on the, the renewable side of the business but I really encourage the listeners to take a look at the China five year plan and just to do some cursory research and stuff on this and pull up the numbers on the on the emissions from this because those are you know, that's how I was approaching this is from the emissions standpoint. If you're pulling that up on, on China, it's just, it's just a huge, huge problem that's not going to go away. And the rhetoric versus reality are are not coming together right now. Um, so it's a it's a real serious thing. And we're uh, stay tuned because we're going to cover everything related to oil, gas and energy on the Petronas podcast. And yes, we talk about macro and inflation and the market quite a bit, too. So everybody take a breath with me. Trisha's done now for the evening. Yeah. Thanks. I'm your co-host, Ethan Bellamy. This is Trisha Curtis. and I'm we're your host. Thank you very she much. She is definitely the host. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time. We'll see Bye. you next time.